Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Good afternoon. Hello. Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. And today I'm very pleased to be welcoming Professor Hannah Koch, who is Professor of Epilepsy and Medical Education and MBBS Course Director at St. George's University. She works as a consultant neurologist at St. George's Hospital, and she's been working in status epileptic research uh, for the last 25 years, including being part of the ILAA classification task force and was one of the lead investigators of the established status epilepticus treatment trial. So thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to be talking about convulsive status epilepticus. So to start off with, can you tell us what is convulsive status epilepticus? So I think to answer that, we need to look at the definition of status in the first place and then come on to the sort of classification, what we mean by convulsive status. Um, so status epilepticus, like epilepsy, is not a single condition. It has many different causes, many different manifestations. But the broad definition of status, uh, which was updated in 2015, is that this is a condition resulting either from the failure of mechanisms that would normally terminate seizures in the brain or because of something driving continuous seizures in the brain, leading to abnormally prolonged seizures. And it's also a condition that can have long-term consequences, including neuronal death, neuronal injury, alteration of networks, depending on the type and duration of seizures. There are two time points within that that are important. The first is what's the point at which the seizures defined as abnormally prolonged. Uh, and the second is, well, when do you need to switch it off by in order to reduce the risk of long-term consequences? Now, convulsive status, epi- status epilepticus in general, uh, the simplest classifications are to look at it in terms of prominent motor features. Uh, and if there are prominent motor features, that's in the sort of convulsive uh, arm, if you like, um, and where the extent to which awareness is affected. When we talk about convulsive status epilepticus, we usually mean a condition where both of those things are are a problem. So there are both prominent motor features and there is loss of awareness. So really, we're talking about tonic-clonic status epilepticus, although there are some other subtypes. Um, And the important time points in convulsive status epilepticus are uh, five minutes is the point at which we know that almost all tonic-clonic seizures stop well before five minutes. And if they're ongoing at five minutes, it's very likely that this is going to be status epilepticus. And so that's the time point at which we would start emergency treatment. And the time point at which the risk of permanent damage starts to build up is 30 minutes. So that's the point at which you really need to have controlled the seizures, if at all possible. So it's a real medical emergency. Uh, You've got a first intervention defining it at five minutes of continuous or recurrent tonic-clonic seizures without recovery. And 30 minutes is the time point at which you really ought to have switched it off because beyond that, you'll be at increased risk of permanent damage. Okay, thank you. What would be the main differentials for this condition? I think the main differential, the commonest problem, is is distinguishing it from dissociative or functional or or non-epileptic status epilepticus, which to the inexperienced or someone who doesn't look at these sort of patients a lot, and indeed sometimes even to a very experienced clinician, can be quite difficult to tell apart. Um, The other condition where we know... The other circumstance where we know it can be misdiagnosed is the patient who is manifesting with 
brief bursts of motor activity and in between they're just confused and they're not getting back to baseline. Uh, actually, if that's what's happening, that's still convulsive status epilepticus. Uh, and then linked to that are those patients who may have had witnessed or unwitnessed tonic-clonic convulsions lasting for a long time, but there comes a point after 30, 60 minutes or longer sometimes where the body just can't sustain the motor features. So from the brain's perspective, it's still in convulsive tonic, convulsive status epilepticus. It's still got generalized discharges. All the bad things that go along with status epilepticus are still happening. But what there is to see externally becomes much more subtle. So it may just be twisting, uh, little bits of twitching and nystagmoid eye movements. Uh, and I think that often then gets misdiagnosed as non-convulsive status or another cause of an acute confusional state, whereas actually it is the burnt out phase of mm -hmm. convulsive status epilepticus and it needs managing as convulsive status. Okay, excellent. How might um, uh, you discriminate between non-epileptic or dissociative seizures and status epilepticus? So, there isn't a single feature that you can rely on. There's a lot of mythology around and some of the older textbooks that will say things like, oh, well, if they bite their tongue, it must be real. If you like, it must be convulsive status. Um, if they have um, sort of pelvic thrusting, then it, it must be dissociative. Um, you know, there are a lot of, of different features that are put about as being clear markers, and there isn't a single feature that will reliably distinguish between the two. Uh, it's really um, being aware of some of the features that favour dissociative seizures. So things that we know favour dissociative seizures is if the actual convulsive bit, if you like, uh, really continues for more than five minutes, but then there's waxing and waning, sort of fluctuating course, stopping and starting. You don't generally see that in tonic-clonic status. You definitely see it in dissociative seizures, that mm -hmm. stopping and starting. Um, asynchronous rhythmic movement, so really looking at whether all of the limbs or body are jerking together, side-to-side -side head movements or side-to-side -side sort of rocking, rolling movements during a convulsion is something that's very much in favour of dissociative seizures and less common with, with tonic-clonic status epilepticus. Um, closed eyes during the convulsions, again, is, is in favour of dissociative ictal crying, so actual tears coming out of the eyes is in favour of dissociative. But the bottom line is that there, there are exceptions to everything. So you have to look at the whole picture. You can't just go, well, there is pelvic thrusting, therefore it must be dissociative, because you can see that in some types of frontal lobe seizure or, or other conditions. So you, you do, and unfortunately, it does become a question of of pattern recognition. And one thing I would urge everyone to do is if you have any doubt about whether the patient in front of you is in tonic-clonic status or dissociative status, then please take a video before you sedate and you know switch them off because it's very, very hard to come along after the event as the specialist and try and work out in retrospect. Whereas if you're someone like me or any other of the epilepsy specialists around the country who spend a lot of our time looking at videos of people having fits, faints, funny turns, you get much more expert. 
uh, just by accumulation of hours doing it at recognising oh, this is clearly dissociative and this isn't. And there's been research studies now demonstrating that expert review of video alone can be up to 98% sensitive and specific in terms of correctly distinguishing between the two. It's not 100%, but that's much higher than virtually any other investigation that neurologists do in terms of sensitivity and specificity. People worry about taking a video and it being sensitive information. And I always say, say, well, you know, we we do emergency surgery on people who are unconscious and can't give consent. We put people to sleep and put them in scanners without their consent. Taking a video is an investigative test and providing that you take appropriate precautions to protect that information and get it onto secure NHS systems and it's not syncing with clouds and all of that. It's a perfectly acceptable thing to do within GMC guidance. What are the causes of status epilepticus? Yeah, so that there are in it varies considerably between depending which age group you're looking at. So in children, febrile status epilepticus is one of the commonest causes, and you also see it in some of the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, some of the uh, sort of, you know, that end of the spectrum. In adults, about 50% of cases um, are in patients with known epilepsy, and then it can often be triggered by missing medication, by alcohol, recreational drugs, um, or uh, by other intercurrent illness, you know, having sepsis or something else Mm -hmm. going on. And then the other group, it's about 50-50, almost any insult to the brain that can cause seizures can cause status epilepticus. So again, alcohol, stimulant, alcohol withdrawal, stimulant recreational drugs, acute stroke, traumatic brain injury, encephalitis, meningitis, uh, any uh, and, and severe metabolic disturbances. Um, so hypoglycemia and calcium derangements, those sorts of things. And we increasingly recognise in the big studies that were done years ago, probably around 30%, it would say cause unknown. And of course, we now know that a lot of those are, are autoimmune, mm-hmm. uh, that that's probably a bigger problem than we recognised in the past, particularly in those cases that become refractory or super refractory, that they may be due to autoimmune uh, causes, including some paraneoplastic, but particularly in relation to NMDA and, and calcium and potassium channel mutation um, antibodies. Thank you. Um, you mentioned at the start that the um, if this is going on for longer than five minutes, we need to be initiating treatment. And if it's longer than 30 minutes, that's when we worry about damage, um, long-term damage to the, to the brain. Um, so can you, can you t- tell us about what the treatment is for status epilepticus? Yeah, so as for any emergency condition, the basic first aid, make sure the patient's safe, airway, breathing, circulation, the the usual sort of approach. But the the core of treatment really is using medications to try and terminate the seizures and in parallel with that, investigating the cause. Because if it's an acute symptomatic cause, i.e. it's due to low blood sugar, then of course the treatment is is Mm -hmm. correcting that, uh, if at all possible. Uh, and that the basic, uh, when when you're looking at anti-seizure medications in status epilepticus, then the, the usual first line treatment is benzodiazepines. Uh, and then second line, traditionally we'd use um, anti-epileptic drugs. It used to be phenytoin. Uh, increasingly now, I think practice has shifted away from that and towards either levetiracetam or valparate. And then if that hasn't worked, then uh, in most cases, the current guidance recommend anaesthesia, so intubation and anaesthesia. Now, in reality, 
getting through all of those steps in 30 minutes is rarely practical, particularly when you bear in mind that the patient may have presented out of hospital. And that's why if a patient's known to be at risk of status, or have had previous episodes, they will often have a community rescue protocol with a first-line benzodiazepine, usually buccalmidazolam, or in ambulances, rectal diazepam is still used, or intravenous lorazepam if you've got IV access. Uh, and the sooner you start that, the better. So anyone working in A&E will know that patients have often had that before they get to A&E. Uh, and then in A&E, you would initiate the second line treatment anti-epileptic drug. And my advice is always, if you're starting that second line treatment, is alert the anaesthetist then that there's a patient there with convulsive status epilepticus, and you might need them quite soon to try and get those time frames down. And I think the reason we know there's very good evidence that um, the first one or two hours in status epilepticus, convulsive status, are really the critical time period. Um, so 30 minutes is the definition. We know you'll rarely switch it off within 30 minutes, but you really should be trying to do it within that first hour, certainly within the first two hours, including the time that it's taken for the patient to get to hospital and, and any prior steps. Uh, because it, it, it's that time period that's most critical in terms of outcome. Okay. And what evidence, evidence do we have to guide this treatment? So I think in terms of the the, the speed element, um, as I mentioned, that there's a lot of studies now. There's a lot of controversy over the years because uh, it's also true that age is a determinant of outcome and etiology is a determinant of outcome. Uh, but there is good evidence now that, to say, that first one to two hours in convulsive status epilepticus do have an independent effect on outcome. So I think speed there's good evidence for. In terms of choice of agents, uh, there have been a very large number of randomised studies looking at all sorts of benzodiazepines, uh, both in community and hospital settings, retrospective blinded open um, case series and randomised controlled trials. And there's very good evidence that uh, any of those benzodiazepines given promptly and given in adequate doses will terminate seizures in about 70% of cases. So first line benzodiazepines we've got very good evidence for. When it comes to second line treatment, um, until relatively recently, 2019, uh, we had very little evidence. There'd been one good quality uh, randomized control trial in the late 90s. And in fact, the kind of loser, if you like, in that trial was phenytoin. And yet that was the drug that we all continued to use. And it's one of the things that got me interested in this area in the first place. In 2019, there were three large studies published. So one was the established status epilepticus treatment trial, which, which you mentioned at the beginning. And that's class A randomized controlled trial evidence, double-blinded uh, for benzodiazepine refractory convulsive status epilepticus in adults and children who were randomized to, in a blinded fashion to infusions of either phosphenytoin at 20 mg per kilo, levetiracetam at 60 mg per kilo, or valparate at 40 mg per kilo. And uh, that study uh, which was published in 2019 um, in The Lancet and in the New England Journal, uh, two different, uh, different papers, um, showed that all three agents work, basically, that mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't any significant difference between any of the three agents and that they work in about 50% of cases. So benzos will work in 70% and of the benzodiazepine refractory, any of those agents will work in about 50% uh, of the cases. 
There were also two other big open randomized pediatric studies published the same year, one from the UK and one from um, Australia, uh, which essentially showed the same thing. They were only looking at levotracetam versus phenytoin, not valparate, and only in pediatric populations. But again, there were no significant differences between the, the groups. However, if you look at the broader safety profile of all of those agents, which of course are in widespread use in, in, in epilepsy in general, um, the expert consensus now is that both valparate and levetiracetam are probably safer and have practical advantages. What We didn't demonstrate that in any of the studies in terms of uh, safety because the number of adverse events was, to was so small, we, we weren't powered for that. But if you look at all of the literature in broader terms, uh, we know that loading dose errors with phenytoin can be fatal. Uh, it's one of the few drugs where that applies. We know that phenytoin can exacerbate uh, the genetic generalized epilepsies and often you won't know with the patient in front of you. And phenytoin is very rarely used as a maintenance therapy these days in epilepsy. It doesn't have a great adverse event profile. Um, so ov overall, um, valparate and levotracetam are, are generally now accepted as safer and having practical advantages. They can be given much more quickly. It only takes a matter of five minutes or so to give a valparate infusion and around 10 minutes to give a levotracetam infusion at those doses, mm -hmm. which obviously in a condition where speed is of the essence uh, is a, a massive advantage over phenytoin, which would often take 30 or 40 minutes to give and with hypotension and other problems. When you look at anesthesia, the honest, honest truth is we've got very little evidence about uh, which anesthetic agent to use or indeed the timing of anesthesia. There's a bit of a move, particularly in the States at the moment, to start looking at, well, maybe we should be anesthetizing people as they come in through the front door. Mm. Maybe a short, sharp burst of anesthesia would be better than, than the delays. And that, that's a question that still needs to be answered. Thank you. Um, going back to the ESET trial, in, in that trial you used phosphenatoin, and that's slightly different, isn't it, from, from phenytoin, which we use in the UK? Yeah, I mean, phosphenatoin you know, is available in the UK, but it's, it's a lot more expensive. It never really took off. Phosphenatoin is a pro-drug for phenytoin, so uh, the main advantages of it are in terms of loading. It can be loaded more quickly. So phosphenatoin, all three agents in the trial that we did were given over a 10-minute infusion basically so we had to use phosphenytoin in order to blind the study mm -hmm. to manufacture our own uh, dilutions to, to do that um, but uh, and it, it possibly has a slightly better safety profile than phenytoin um, but I don't think it changes the sort of outcome and the conclusions overall from the study yeah yeah okay thank you what what um, are the common pitfalls in the management of status epilepticus so I think uh, one we've already talked about is misdiagnosis. Uh, yeah. And we know that's a problem in both ways. We know that patients with dissociative seizures often get intubated and end up on intensive care and, of course, start fitting again as soon as you uh, lower the, the infusions and that carries risks of its own. We also know uh, that, that patients with convulsive status epilepticus fail to get recognised and 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 don't get treated promptly as a result. So that's that's the first sort of pitfall. Um, the other big areas really are around underdosing and delays in treatment. 
Uh, there's a very widespread culture in underdosing um, at all stages of status epilepticus. And we know, and there's good evidence looking at this, that, that this is unsurprisingly associated with poor outcomes. Uh, and it's a, a real source of frustration that this is an area where we've got really good quality evidence, all the guidance, the national guidance, the NICE guidance, hospital press all say give 10 milligrams of diazepam or um, four milligrams of lorazepam, but time and time again, you, you see the patient and what's happened is the clinician treating them and said, oh, that sounds like a lot. Let's just give five of lorazepam mm. or let's give one or two of lorazepam and then we'll try a bit more later. And all that does is delay outcome. And I think with benzodiazepines, there seems to be a uh, non-evidenced fear of respiratory depression, whereas the real thing that is stopping these patients breathing adequately is the fact that they've got ongoing seizures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we see that with... Um, uh, second line treatment as well. Um, I think what used to happen with phenytoin, I certainly saw a lot of it uh, in parts, is that everyone would give a gram. They wouldn't think about the 20 mg per kilo dose. They would just give a gram and hope that was close enough. Um, and it used to be that we saw a bit of that with levetiracetam yeah, as well. Very few yeah. people use valparate. But I know when you and I worked together a while back, um, people would often give a gram of levetiracetam. I'm pleased to see that I think that is something that's now changing, certainly in the UK. Um, that with, And I'm hopeful that with the NICE guidance coming out, which, which does now, it still lists all three drugs, but it does say that levetiracetam or valparate may have practical advantages. And I think as people get more comfortable using the, the doses, and now we've got really prominent high quality trials that have been published demonstrating that 60 mg per kilo of levetiracetam with a ceiling of 4.5 grams is safe and effective that people are getting more confident in using it um, but i think it, it is really that it's underdosing and delays in treatment which i think are the biggest barriers thank you and um, how do you think we can uh, we can change this or avoid these that's a, that's a really tricky question avoid these problems <laughs> Yeah, so it is a really uh, diff tricky question and, and it triggered me um, with you, in fact, a few years ago to look in some detail about, well, how do you change practice? How, you know, what are the sort of educational, or what are the approaches to help change uh, practice in, in this scenario? And I think where we've seen it happen most effectively is where there's structural change. So if you look at how stroke is managed now, uh, the fact that neurologists and stroke teams they owned stroke you know from the moment that patient comes in the door they're looked after by a team who are invested in that condition and I think in an ideal world that's where we you know that's the thing that would help most for for status and and it isn't it's not as common as stroke. I think that's the barrier. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, many hospitals will have maybe one or two, you know, convulsive status a week, uh, unlike strokes where you're often getting many a day. Given that we're not likely to have structural change uh, anytime soon, I think the other interventions which are, can be effective, of course, education, this is part of it, multimodal education, doing it in lots of different ways uh, to reach different learning styles, uh, making sure that uh, all staff involved in managing the cases are aware of the local policies. So that means local education as well. It means somebody in each trust or each one taking ownership and bothering to chase up things with their A&E teams or their anaesthetists and doing educational interventions locally. I think computerised prescribing, electronic prescribing, there's a role for that because... It, 
we did it in the ESET trial with the devices we were using. Uh, as soon as you, you know, press a button that says, I want 4.5 grams of levotracetam, if there's a prompt that says, is this for status? Uh, wouldn't it be marvellous if that triggered a computer voice to go, are they still fitting? Do this. Are they still fitting? Mm. Do that. Which is effectively what our device did in the ESET trial, you know, which I think does help that sort of, you know, we're all busy people. I think having that sort of computerised prompts is helpful. And the other thing I'm really uh, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on is a kind of brief educational intervention. So if you as the neurologist or, you know, whatever stage you're at, uh, or an A&E consultant or whoever it is, if you know your local guidelines, if you're the neurointensivist admitting someone to ICU, use that opportunity when you're taking handover from the patient to go, oh, I see you only gave them 1.5 grams of levotracetam. Can I just draw your attention to that the guidance is actually this, just so you know for next time. Doing that that sort of personalised individual intervention, feeding back to the clinician who's done it in a constructive way, I think it is another way that we should all, you know, all be using to try and change the culture around managing status. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, is there anything else you, you would like to add? No, just thank you very much for inviting me. This is a topic I'm passionate about. I've spent, as I say, 25 years of my life trying to get uh, to try and sort of influence practice in this area. And, and I, you know, I'm pleased to see uh, there are other people still interested as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.